Where are you from, Doug? Originally, I'm from Waukee, Iowa, which at the time I grew up was a small farm town west of Des Moines, about 400 people. Okay. Was it a, a poppy farm? No, in Iowa, it's a corn farm. Corn so farm, yeah. <laughs> and a few soybeans intersprinkled, but mostly it's corn. Okay. Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm in Chicago right now, so Illinois is majority like corn and wheat for the most part, too. If you drive down south, it's all like corn fields, and that's all you really see. Yeah, my father ran a grain elevator, so I would guess 90% of the business was corn, but and some soybeans, and occasionally some of the farmers would raise some oats to for their cattle or hogs or something else, but mostly corn. Okay, super cool. Yeah, my, my parents were farmers, but this was back in Poland. This was, this was years ago. We came uh, to the U.S. in 94, so I was almost two years old, and there were farmers back in the day. Basically, my grandparents were farmers, my great-grandparents were farmers. They were all basically generations of, of farmers for for up until the point where they decided to come here, and then, of course, they got like regular jobs and stuff like that. You lose it in a hurry. I, I You know, farming... And having a vegetable garden, all that sort of stuff was natural to me because when you grow up in it as a kid, you know, you just learn it. It's like fishing or baseball or football, golf. Anything you learn becomes uh, so innate when you're young. And, you know, my, my two daughters sort of learned a little bit about gardening. I like to vegetable garden. And of course, their their kids now know nothing about it. It's amazing how rapidly the farming, and everybody wants to be a city slicker farmer, but it's amazing how quickly uh, it disappears. Hey, everyone. We've been using Furnish Finder for the last five years. When it comes to travel nursing assignments or long-term vacations, Furnished Finder is a place to go. One of the most trustful aspects about travel nursing is finding housing. There are a lot of sites that offer furnished homes for short-term leasing. Furnished Finder has thousands of furnished properties nationwide to meet your every need. If you're looking for a one-bedroom studio to a three-bedroom family home, Furnished Finder has you covered. Travel with a peace of mind with Furnished Finder. Start your search at FurnishedFinder.com. Yeah, I mean, 100%, because I remember when I was growing up, and my parents, they still have gardens, all that kind of stuff. I remember going with my dad to, like, top, chop down trees because my parents have a fireplace. So when I was younger, I hated it because I felt like it was, like, a chore. But now that I'm here living alone, I actually like it. Like, I grew tomatoes. I'm growing different flowers. You know, I, I have flowers all around you. Learn to appreciate it more, like, later on in the future when you actually see, like, the benefits of it and you actually kind of go through a process of just doing it by yourself versus like your parents telling you, hey, come help, come help me with this, come help with that, and so on and so forth. I feel like once you do it by yourself and on your own time, then you finally appreciate it and you're like, okay, now I understand why my parents like to garden. Now I understand why my parents always had vegetables. You find like a new appreciation for it. No, I agree. I mean, that was my problem with it. When I first left the farm, uh, you know, I wanted nothing to do with it. I hated it. It, it just, it was a chore. It was work and and to a little bit, it's a responsibility for us. My mo mother can, so we had a huge vegetable garden. And 
it was a lot of work. And of course, I'd rather be out playing basketball or football or baseball or something with the other kids. So I hated it for a long time. And then just as you, as I got a little older, I got into it. And I had a one time probably 40 to 60 hybrid tomato plants. I really got into it big time, would only grow hybrids and change them around every year to see which one grew best in our area and stuff. So okay, super cool. quite about out turn. Yeah. I never did like, um, you know, experiment with like tomatoes. I just grow like the, I think I call it big reds. I think that's what I got this year. So those are the ones that I grow, grew, um, this time around, but I'm experimenting with growing some marijuana. So I have like different plants and I'm kind of, um, gardening those for now, like, like indoor, you know, some of them, I'm doing like a little experience. Some of them, like I top, some of my trim, some of them, some of my don'ts. I'm trying to figure out what's like the most efficient to, you know, to, to grow. It's like a hobby, you know, I don't sell to dispensaries or anything like that. I don't make money off it, but it's just something that I enjoy doing. And it just feels like it's, it feels good. You're like providing life for, for a plant. And then you get to see it throughout its whole life and it's indoors. I get to see it grow. And after like a few months, it gets bigger and bigger. And then it gets like the buds on there. So it's super, super interesting. super fascinating how like life just sprouts from a seed and you get to visualize that firsthand. No, I agree. It's it's actually, they just, I suppose in the way, lack the soul, but I, I find the plant kingdom very, very fascinating. I, I'm a physician or was a licensed physician. I'm not licensed anymore, but I considered it uh, akin to taking care of people. Uh, I love taking care of plants. Yeah, is that, it's just how that translates over. You say you like taking care of plants. You happen to end up being a, being a physician. You like taking care of people. So what really drew you to becoming a physician? Just just you wanted to help people and better their, their physical and mental well-being? What really drew you to, to medicine? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, I think that's a standard thing that everybody says, but I'm probably a little unique. My, you know, my parents were basic people, and the thing back in the 50s and 60s when I grew up is you had to go to college to get ahead in life. Of course, that's my, what my father espoused. He really didn't know much about it. I went to college really without any goals, just because he said I had to. In my freshman year, I floundered around. I'm from a fairly rigid Irish Catholic family, Catholic all-boy high school, and went to a Jesuit school. And the second year, I became a dorm advisor my sophomore year. And during the first semester of that second year, the Jesuit priest called me into his office and he wanted to know if I ever thought about going into medicine. And I, I told him I'd never even thought about it. And he, he said, um, you know, you would be a really good doctor. You should go into medicine. So that was that was all I needed was somebody I respected to give me direction in life. And 
a year and a half later, I was in medical school, and I only went to undergraduate three years. They took all their prerequisites, applied after my third year, and next thing I knew, I was in medicine. But I can tell you, I was very, very immature, and really, even though I was in medical school, I really had no idea what I was doing. And when you're in, at that time, medical school was really, really competitive. And, you know, it was all, not that it's not competitive now, but it was all males and they'd cut your arm off for competition, which is eventually what we're going to talk about today. But it was a very different environment uh, than it is now. The birds would be posted after a test so you knew who was one number one, where you stood for in class and how what you had to do to try and match what they were doing. But the fortunate thing, you know, life is so strange. I ended up in Vietnam in a mass unit up on the demilitarized zone. And, you know, after that experience, I I sort of became a man and I knew what it was to be a doctor. Well, from that point on, I excelled as a physician. I knew I knew how to save lives. I knew how to treat sick people. There wasn't anything I was afraid of. And so when I came back to the States, I had a really easy time um, because of, of that particular experience, which I would have never had, and I never would have had direction. You know, when you, when you choose medicine... In your undergraduate school, you work hard. You try and get good grades so you can get in the medical school. You work hard in medical school so you can get your internship. You work hard so you can get into your residency, and then you work hard to get a fellowship, and then you get into practice, and you got to work hard to establish yourself. So most physicians at 40 look up and say, who am I and what have I done to myself? You know, they, they've been in this sort of echo chamber and have an arrested uh, maturity, I think, from dating clear back into high school. So I I was able to break that, not by my choice, but by the choices other people made for me. Turned out to be the best thing that happened to me in my life. Yeah, medicine is is, is interesting because, like you said, the, the, the majority of the first part of, you could say, your life you spent in school in books, in the hospitals, doing uh, clinicals, patients, all that kind of stuff. So I feel like lots of times when I speak to, when I speak to physicians, um, sometimes I ask, hey, would you you know, change anything? Would you want to go back to be a doctor or would you change fuel? A lot of them usually tell me that they spent a big portion of their life in school and their life started like after the age of like 30 or after the age of 35 and 40 because they just spent that majority of their life in, in with books in the medical field. So it's a really big devotion because you spent a lot of your time in school. And then once you graduate, once you, once you finish, you get your residencies, all that kind of stuff. You're then also focused on other people. So it's almost like you're never, almost in a sense, living for yourself because you're so focused on either school or then you're, once you finish, you're so focused on other people trying to make them healthy, trying to make them uh, this, this is better. So is there anything that maybe you struggled with um, or did you struggle with that, with that yourself? Did you have any issues when you graduated looking back into it that's, hey, I spent this 
giant portion of, of my life in school. Did you have any regrets, anything like that? Well, I don't have regrets, but I would never do it again. <laughs> no, I mean, it was hard work. And then it's just, as you said, I happen to be of the old school. So if you called me in the middle of the night, I would have gotten up and come see you. So, you know, I practiced at 110%. If I wasn't on call on the weekend and one of my patients got hurt, um, you know, I, I would, even though I wasn't on call, I'd go take care of them. In my particular group, there were six to eight orthopedic surgeons, but I was the only one that did a lot of hip fractures. So even on weekends that I wasn't on call, if a hip fracture came in, then I was kind of expected to go in and take care of it. So I really practiced 24-7, and I saw 100 people a week, which is a pretty good number, and there, you can't see 100 people a week and not have a complication. And if you have a complication, your week is ruined. You can't get that out of your mind. It, it bothers you uh, when you sleep and you know, you have really little control of, over your life. When, you know, when I went to, I got up at six, I was at work by seven. And there was never a day in my life that my schedule was what I thought it was going to be. You know, I'd be in bed planning everything and how everything's going to be. And, you know, I might walk into the office at eight o'clock and there's a broken wrist. And so I'm already behind schedule for the rest of the day. So what I, I never did like any of that. That just wasn't my personality. My, my Jesuit friend was right. I'm, I think I became a very good physician, but I'm like, I'm more like the guy that buys the boat. He has two happy days, the day he buys it and the day he sells it. And my happy day was getting into medical school or graduating. And my next happy day was when I retired. And sort of what I call the dash, the in-between time, like you're born on this day and die. This day, there's a dash in between. That was my medical experience, was was quite a long dash. Did I enjoy it? I, yes, I enjoyed it, but thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah. So how did you transition from being a physician, always having this full schedule, always having to stay late, always having to add on additional patients. How did you transition from that to now being retired? Did you find yourself doing some new hobbies? How did you fill your life with, uh, I guess you could say, try to fill it with as much excitement as you had when you were a physician? Well, I, I just changed one job for a next job. I became an author, and that's a terrible thing to do for yourself. Because um, in the end, you're, it has a lot of similarities to being a physician. I'm always my, I'm always writing, so I, I'm always thinking. I'm always thinking about the next thing I want to say. When I read an article, I'm always thinking, can I include that? My wife, of course, talks to me, and, and then she says, "Did you hear what she said? Are you writing right now?" So it. Um, it's fairly consuming for me. I uh, The first book that I did was quite large, and there were over 600 citations on it. So I, I did a lot of, I was a 
full clinical professor of orthopedics at USC and published over 120 scientific articles. So I, I had the, the background to do nonfiction and to do a lot of research in my nonfiction. And so I now I spend my time reading, writing, thinking, and I walk three miles every day, which takes about an hour. And I always have my honeydews and everything else. So just like in my practice, there's rarely a day that I get everything done that, that I I planned on doing. And I hate I hate to say it, but I'm 79 years old. And fortunately, I'm in good health. But I put in a full day every day. Those 50% of people aren't happy when they retire. But it, I really didn't take a took a financial break, but I didn't take a break from from practicing to retire. Not really. Yeah, and dog, because you said that about 50% of people when they retire, you know, they kind of uh, get lost or they're, they're that unsatisfied. Why do you think that happens? Because well, I've been working. At, sorry, well, I've been working well, in the ICU for a while now, and what I've noticed is lots of times people retire, they get sick, and I asked them. Like what was going on, and a lot of times they tell me that they just had nothing to do. They almost lost their goals. They became less driven, and they became bored after retirement, and they couldn't fill that that time. And what I've noticed is, maybe it's just me, but I feel like there's some kind of a correlation with not having any kind of hobbies or not having things to do after re- retirement that puts people in in worse health. So I'm curious, like, on your opinion on that, and why do you think people are unhappy after they retire? Well, you most people in America, it's not that way worldwide, but in America, you know, we are identified with our job. And I mean it, you know, those in the old days, you know, if you worked for GM, you worked for GM your entire life, 30 or 40 years. So that becomes we're we're in a meritocracy, which America was, although we're drifting away from it. And your competitiveness and working and getting ahead uh, is wrapped up into your profession or job. So when you lose that, um, you have a hard time gaining a new identity because first you lose your skills. It's like and physicians are especially bad at that because you know the more train, the more training you have, the less skills you have. You become a specialist, but you can't do very much. It's like an airline pilot. What, what good are they, you know, as far as doing other things in life? They train and they become very narrow. And it's a great job and they do a wonderful job, but it, it's not a very broad job. And when you quit, it's like, what am I going to do now? I can't get another job somewhere, and that's kind of the extreme, but most people are like that. So they have a they have a hard time repurposing themselves. And I still, I still garden. I, we relocated when I retired, which is another problem thing that happens to people. I lived in L.A. and coming from a small farm town, a 400 to a town of 10 to 20 million was a big transition, and I knew I would never retire there. I just hated L.A. 
but there was the land still the land of opportunity. And then you retire and you leave your friends behind and you don't have a mechanism to meet new friends and most friends have their circle of friends and they aren't interested in making new friends. So you have a hard time with friendship, with gaining meaning, and we scaled down. I had a I actually owned a lot next to the house that I had, which is where I had my big garden. And here we have a very small, much smaller house and a much smaller yacht. So a lot. So most of my gardening is container gardening. And so even that hobby I lost. I, I for example, uh, when my daughter went to college, my younger daughter, she wasn't that interested in school. It was kind of like me telling her what my father said. You have to go to college to get ahead. You have to figure out who you are and what you want to do in life. And she, like myself, had some trouble doing that. But I put a gym in her bedroom, signifying that she couldn't come home, that that, that was not her room anymore, that I'd taken that over. And so I had a gym, which I did it not as a mean thing to do, but I actually became one of the few people that bought a treadmill that actually used it at all. I went through three treadmills during my generation whole time in L.A. And then when I came up here, our, our home wasn't big enough to have an extra room for a gym, so I joined a gym, which I thought would be a good deal to meet people. And as an older person... You don't meet the right people in the gym that you think you're going to meet. You know, the younger people are looking at mirrors and looking buff and stuff. And the last thing I want to do is look at a mirror and try and look buff. So the uh, first gym that I joined, I didn't like. And the second gym that I joined, I didn't like much better. So then when COVID struck, I switched that to just pure walking every day, and I enjoy that much more in the solitude of it. So, so, but I lost out on what I thought might be a me- mechanism of meeting new people and gaining some new friendships. So retirement's hard for, for new friends. You actually also are moving away from old friends, which is also a little bit painful for me because after 37 years in L.A., and... Yeah. Huh. I I saw 100 people a week, so in 37 years, you know, I saw a quarter of the people in, in Long Beach. It's a town of 500,000 people, so I couldn't go anywhere where I didn't recognize somebody, coffee shop or the bank, and to go to a new place and not know anybody and walk in and the banker doesn't know you and doesn't want to give you an extra hand. It's very difficult sometimes at retirement. So I bridge that by immersing myself in work. And I've worked at, um, you ever hear of uh, St. John's in Santa Monica? Yeah. So I worked there for a few few contracts. Yeah. Well, I ended up running a total joint practice in in Long Beach at Memorial Hospital there. And of course, uh, St. John's is big on joint replacement up there, and I knew a lot of the people that did the joint replacements. 
Yeah, I lived in Long Beach for a little bit, and I drove from Long Beach to um to Santa Monica when I was working on a contract for for St. Joe's. I also worked at um Huntington Hospital in Pasadena. I'm not sure you're familiar with with that. Oh yeah, no, that's um one of my very good friends. Well, more than one, quite a few. That the um, Huntington was kind of a USC between the two main medical schools, UCLA and USC. Um, he, and I was in the training program. So the value, the value of a training program is after 30 years, you train a lot of people. So you also know a lot of your compatriots in, in the city. It's very good. So uh, yes, that's how I knew a lot of people, even though Long Beach is far removed from both of those places. It was because of my, of the residency program in orthopedics that I knew people at both hospitals. You ever worked at a, a Kaiser facility? Yeah, I worked in the Bellflower Kaiser. That's when I first started, which at that time, uh, many people relocated to, everybody still, to include myself, wanted to go to California. So Kaiser was an easy way to come to California. But you could come and work there for a few years, get established, figure out the area, figure out where it might be a good place look for guys, go to meetings, and see who's looking for partners. So a lot of people in those days used Kaiser's moving mechanism and would be there a few years and move on. I used it I used it for a different mechanism. My specialty was in uh, the orthopedically disabled. I worked at Rancho Los Amigos Hospital. I don't know if you know that big re- rehabilitation center. And for example, our spinal cord injury unit was a hundred beds when I was there. And one of the biggest and most respected in the country. So I worked there uh, for 30 years and Bellflower, uh, that was in Downey and Bellflower was the adjacent town. And so I worked at at the Kaiser Bellflower facility to do general orthopedics because I was doing specialty orthopedics and I didn't want to lose my ability to take care of people. It's a different concept. Um, You know, if you learn how to take care of a spinal cord injury patient, it's kind of like the pilot. That that doesn't do you a lot of good in your professional career because if I go to St. John's, there's not going to be a lot of spinal cord injury people coming there for care. So it it was a wonderful experience for the so-called giving back to society and also for the academic experience because there's not a lot of competition um, people doing spinal cord injuries, so it's much easier to do publish research papers in spinal cord injury than say, total joint surgery, where there's thousands of orthopedic surgeons doing total joint replacement. So professionally, it was um, also a wonderful place to practice. But after I got my legs, so to speak, I um, went to practice in Long Beach, where I practiced for almost 37 years in private practice, and then still kept my teaching appointment and worked in rehabilitation as well. And Doug, how did you get into the concept of tall poppy syndrome? Can you explain to me what that is, what that means, and 
Why did you find it so interesting? Well, it happened to me. It's so it's like so many things in life. I mean, you ask why I went into medicine was was very unusual. But there's a lot of people. For example, in my class, we had somebody with polio. So guess what? They, their personal experience and and having polio, they wanted to become a doctor and cure the world. So I actually got what we call tall poppy. Tall poppy. Um, I had become pretty famous and uh, was president of the American Spinal Injury Association, and I was away at a meeting, an international meeting, and finishing up plans to go to Australia. You know, the rest of the world is, is not private medicine. It's government medicine, so spinal cord injury is a much bigger hospital item because the government takes care of people not like our government. So, you know, if you're disabled in another country, you have access to medical care much easier than you do in America with through the private insurance sector. So if Australia has six um, rehabilitation centers throughout their country, and I was going to go there and spend a week at each each center. When I got back from the meeting to my office, this is after 30 years of being at that hospital, there was a note on my door that um, my office had been moved from the big corner office down to the little cubby hole at the far end of the hospital. And of course, you know, I didn't know what that mean, but fortunately my wife did. So when I went home and told her that night, he said, they've moved your cheese. I don't know if you read that little book, pamphlet book, 10 or 20 years ago, which was hugely popular, which was also one of my favorite books. But she said, they just moved your cheese. Your your time has run out and the hospital's moving on without you. And I slept on it, which was really good because anger is one of the big cutters in the tall poppy syndrome. Uh, I would have gone back up there and got into a pissing contest and tried to find out who did that and whose idea it was and who thought they could pull it off and try and get my office back and made an idiot of myself. I merely, I had all my scientific research and all the posters from meetings that we had put on, brought in two big green plastic dump cans, put everything in it, all my talks put the key, my key on the desk and walked out and called Australia and told them I wasn't coming back down to the, to do the six week sabbatical. They wanted to know why. And I explained what happened. And they said, well, you've just been tall poppy. And I said, what? And they explained to me what it was. And basically it's a metaphor or looking at a poppy field and seeing one poppy taller than the rest and cutting that poppy down so that all are equal. And uh, in the English-speaking world, Australia is the center of the tall poppy syndrome. That's because it's a, the culture from that country, it was founded by Great Britain as a penal colony. And if you're in a prison system, everybody's equal. And if somebody has a toothbrush and you don't, 
that person's going to get the crap kicked out of them because nobody, everybody's equal there and nobody should have something that somebody else happens to have. So that's the culture that Australia was founded on and it stayed the same to this day. So they're rated the most envious country in the world and that's why um, the tall poppy syndrome is most prevalent there. So my wife was right. She said, quit the job, quit um, doing research, quit teaching, take the day off. We'll spend Fridays in L.A. having fun when everybody's working, and, and I'll take a day off. She's a nurse. And so we, we, the last 10 years were, were really my best professional years in a way. I enjoyed my practice much more. I could spend time, more time with my patients. And it turned out to be a good deal, but in the end, it kept gnawing at me. I knew who, I knew who, I actually knew who did it. It's pretty easy. You know, it's like, there. it's a very similar concept in some ways to being bullied, uh, except bullying's very overt. Tall poppy syndrome's frequently very um, hidden. You don't always know who's cutting you down. But I, I knew... I knew who cut me down. I know to, to this day who cut me down. But as I mentioned, uh, my wife was prudent enough to understand the situation, and and that allowed me to have the patience to make the right decision instead of becoming angry and doing something stupid, which is what happens to most people. I'll tell you, Will Smith is a perfect example of that at the Academy Awards. He became angry and did something stupid and the public cut him down for doing that. So if you wanted an example of the tall poppy syndrome, that's an example. Anyway, so uh, it just gnawed at me. So when, when I retired, you know, now libraries aren't really libraries in the traditional sense, especially the medical libraries, because everything's online. Now the problem with that uh, I practiced orthopedics, and I paid for my journals. But in the online business, if you go and look online, you're not going to get a lot of the journals. If you don't subscribe to them, you'll get an abstract or something. So you, um, being in a near a medical library is very helpful. So the first year I spent, actually, because I spent so much time in libraries and looking up research articles and photocopying them and all that stuff. I still went to the library, even though I was retired and researched for a year, the tall poppy center worldwide. And then after, after I did my research, I then set up just as I would, uh, any study I set up with the premise and then uh, set up how I was going to do the study. So the premise was was that we didn't know about the tall poppy syndrome in America because we're the only country that worships the individual. And we, we especially us on the West Coast, where rugged individualism in the wild, wild West came from. And I, the premise of my study was um, that it must be individualism versus egalitarianism, the 
Nordic countries, the form of egalitarianism, the collectivism, the communism, all the isms that were just so different from all other cultures. So that must be, plus doing the investigative research of the syndrome itself, I I looked at um, other countries to see if, if I could find tall poppy syndrome in them, which all of them I did, and all culture has them, and they'll have a different word or term for them and a different saying. For example, in Japan, it's the tall nail gets pounded down. In Holland, it's the tall tree captures all the wind. So most countries are very aware of the tall poppy syndrome, even though they may not use that particular metaphor. So I set the what we call an observational study, which is um, the, not the table research of you know experimenting on a rat, but ju- I took uh, the L.A. Times, the New York Times, Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal, probably a few other periodicals, and every day I looked for examples of the tall poppy syndrome in America. And guess what I found? I found the tall poppy syndrome was more prevalent in America than everywhere else in the world because of our individualism and because of our meritocracy. So everybody's up for getting promoted. How do you get promoted? You have to work hard. What's the easiest way to get promoted without working hard? Cut somebody down. Look at politics. And and the professions are the worst. You know, if you're an attorney, you have a legal case, you got a 50% chance of winning. That's not very good odds. So you increase your chance by winning by helping cut the other party down or the attorney down. So I... At the end of the study, I had to say that uh, the tall poppy syndrome was more prevalent in America than it was anywhere else in the world. And so that's why I actually then set out to write the book and try and inform America of its behavior and mostly its bad behavior, which is what the cancel culture is and a lot of things which is happening on America. So the next, there's two things that are important for your audience. Your tall poppy is not my tall poppy, so it's a very subjective thing. You know, as soon as you turn Trump on, you're going to have 50% of the population up in arms and say he's not a tall poppy. And to them, he isn't a tall poppy, so don't get bent out of shape. It's no big deal. But... The majority of people aren't tall poppies that get tall poppied. The majority of people are regular people, just like I was. The first thing when I'm working through this, I was hiking with a, an orthopedic friend of mine, and you know we always work through cases and this and that, and how's your book going and this and that. And he goes, well, you know, your whole premise is wrong, and how can this all be because you're not a tall poppy? So that was a really eye-opening thing. So I had to work through um, how the syndrome worked for regular people. And then another lucky thing happens. The tall poppy syndrome cutter, the people that do most of the cutting, are are envious. Envy 
drives the world. When you look at me and I look at you, I'm checking out your mustache, your hair, the clothes you're wearing. It becomes automatic. You don't really understand. You don't really think about it, but you're already making judgments. And we're big on making judgments on people these days. Now you have the internet. Every time you turn it on, you make a judgment. And all these people doing all these selfies are subconsciously trying to make people jealous. Oh, look at this great place I'm at. Look at this wonderful meal I'm having. You're stuck home watching TV or studying. So MB drives the tall poppy syndrome. Number two is um, anger, such as I would have been or Will Smith. And number three is just pure laziness, sloth. And so that's the peer-to-peer, and it happens within your family. I grew up in seven kids, and in my family, my parents tried to keep all of us equal. There was no room for smarty pants in my family as soon as somebody acted out and thought they were better than somebody else. It called for a quick hit on the head from my mother and my father. And then you go into school, and it's either going to be uh, the tall poppy syndrome in school because of envy or bullying. Bullying's the most common uh, by far. You have to differentiate between bullying and tall poppy syndrome. Bullying usually, as I mentioned, it's peer-to-peer. Uh, it's in your tribe. Bullying is actually a discrepancy in power. So that it's usually somebody stronger, somebody with authority over somebody that doesn't have it. It's more repetitive. And um, where tall poppy syndrome is more random. And then you go into the workplace and it continues in the workplace. You go into your neighborhood, like I'm in my neighborhood here, and we have our own little neighborhood pride, whoever fixes their yard up, then you got to, if you're a real man, you got to fix your yard up. So, or have the Christmas decorations or something. So it's to the most people subconscious, you don't understand what you're doing. You're just doing it. So it's really emotionally driven. Now, then you take the, the metaphor itself where you do have a tall poppy. Let's use Harvey Weinstein. He's easy to pick on. So in the true tall poppy, who's somebody that's excelled in society, and the discrepancy that I talk about in the bullying person is definitely there, but it's reversed that um, you're trying to cut the tall poppy down, not being the bully guy bullying down downward. So it takes a group to be able to cut a tall poppy down, and the group then gangs up on the tall poppy, and they cut him down because of justification. That person doesn't deserve, this is justification and deservingness, to be a tall poppy. And I call it egregious behavior, that the tall poppy becomes egregious. What makes him egregious? Number one is pride. Number two is greed. And number three is lust. So I've just given you six of the seven deadly sins, which came from Catholicism back or a pope uh, made 
codified the seven de- deadly sins for monks, which which I found so strange when I was um, reading through all this, was why was a pope codifying the so-called dark emotions for a group that was supposed to be heavenly. And anyway, I attached myself to it and to this syndrome because it's a mechanism to help you remember the behavior of of either the peer-to-peer group, which is once again envious person coveting something that somebody else has, which is way the most common, and then number two, anger, and then just laziness. So that's three of the seven deadly sins. The tall poppy egregious behaviors is pride, way far and away the most common, lust and greed. The only thing we've left out is gluttony. So when you understand, um, when you understand that it's an emotional experience and what's happening to you as you look at society, it becomes a, a self-fulfilling, self-improvement program because you understand, just as my wife understood my my potential bad behavior, you reflect and you understand your behavior. So I can look, as I say, Will Smith now, or on my blog I just did Prigozhin, who, you know, ran the Wagner Group in Russia and Putin cut him down. Um, So you can look internationally, you can look with your own family and see evidence of the tall poppy syndrome. You can figure out whether it's your parents' fault or whether it's your siblings' fault or whether the cutter was actually, it was his bad MP uh, that would actually do it. So it gets you, you know, also you might remember emotional intelligence was a huge movement in, in the 90s. Goldman wrote kind of the premier book on it, on IQ, emotional intelligence is more important getting along in society than IQ intelligence. And this is kind of a kickback to that because if you, this is all studying human emotions. And human, I mean, here's the Pope um, almost 2,000 years ago describing these emotions, and here I am picking them out of the bag and applying to the to today's society, and I just came back from two weeks in Israel, and that's a society three or four thousand years old. And if you go to Israel, all you see is the tall poppy syndrome, one sect after another sect, one racial group after another racial group. It's one culture versus another culture cutting each other down. So it's is that really- why you think it's so prominent in Israel is because there's so much different cultures and religions all like in in one area with with similar borders? Yes. Yes. Yes, it was very... I went there uh, for a religious experience and I didn't exactly... I got a lot of the tall poppy syndrome experience, but I didn't exactly get the religious experience. I still thought Bethlehem was going to be a little small farm town with a little manger. Instead, it's 250,000 people, and most of them 
are Muslims and, you know, there's only, which once was a Christian city, and now there's only 30,000 Christians there. And of course, it's in the West Bank, so that's problematic being adjacent to the city of Jerusalem and going through checkpointing things. So it's um, it's, it's a interesting place to say the least. Yeah. Why do you think there's so much disagreement between people with different religions? Is it like with the tall poppy syndrome, people are thinking that you know their religion is better in, in a sense. Why do you think there's so much so much like hate towards religions, even though a lot of these religions are very similar and they all tend to almost preach the the same thing about being a good person, you know, taking care of your neighbors. But then when it comes to r- religion, a specific one, there has happens to be a lot of violence. Years and years of there's been a violence with with religions forever. But yet each of these religions tell you to, you know, take care of people you know, help them out, be a good person. But yeah, it's almost like the opposite is, is happening and it has been happening for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, that's it. And you that is the supreme question because they, here you are, Christianity, Christianity, Jews and Muslims all have want the one particular area and they all came from this area and they have so many similarities. But it's... Um, once again, who's right? And I think, and and you can't be. It's very hard religiously to be better than somebody else. You have to have more faith in God, and that's not very ostensible. So you cut each other down. So it's it's very prominent, and um, in the religions. And so for me, when you know, as I was talking about writing, all, all my writing and thinking now. Unfortunately, I've trained myself to think of the tall poppy syndrome. So I see the world through the tall poppy syndrome. And so going to Israel and Jerusalem, I I saw the tall poppy syndrome everywhere that I went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned mentioned envy uh, a lot as well. Do you think there's like good envy and bad envy? Because I feel like, you could argue for both sides that some envy can be good because it'll, in a sense, motivate you to attain something that that you want without necessarily, you know, hurting another person. Sometimes maybe envy could be a good good motivator in a sense as long as you're not hurting somebody. So, is there a good and a bad envy in your opinion, or is there just you know you're envious, which means it's always for for a bad cause with bad intentions? Well, unfortunately, I grew up Catholic, and that's why they're called the seven deadly sins. They um, they looked negatively at it, and envy was bad. Um, but Aristotle divided good and bad envy back 400 B.C., for example. And the psychologists now... They don't discriminate. They just say an emotion's at a functional state. They don't apply negative and positive. When I do all my writing, I talk about all the emotions are positive and negative. So good MB is just, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. Good MB is emulation. I want to be like Mike, Michael Jordan. And so you... In order to improve yourself, 
you need tall poppies. Tall poppies are extremely important part of any society. And you know, when I you know, who's my favorite tall poppy in America? It's Elon Musk. Why? Because I think Elon Musk is is one of the most important figures in my lifetime right now. I think he's just a phenomenal person. I don't know about person person, but the things that he's done. And so I didn't know it. I had good habits because of my parents. As I mentioned my father was very strict. He was a uh, World War II bad and four years in the military. So, of course, he and the military drives itself by bullying. The Internet drives itself by envy. A little difference between the two organizations. But anywhere you have an organization, you're going to have either one or both of those things. And in your hierarchy in an organization, you're moving up the next rungs. And it's going to be bullying or tall poppy syndrome trying to prevent the others from getting the position you want. So the good envy, I didn't even realize that, you know, when I was in high school, I stayed with friends that, that uh, were smarter than I was. I In uh, college, I roomed with guys smarter than I was when I was in medical school. The two guys I roomed with were both in the top five of the class, and I was like the bottom five of the class. So I subtly, I didn't know it, but I was using good envy when I, as I mentioned, I was at USC. I was at a very premier rehabilitation center, so I wanted to go practice medicine where medicine was good quality. In my private practice, I was with the president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery. So I didn't know what I was doing, actually, until I studied the tall poppy syndrome. But I was subconsciously, because of my family's guidance, subtle guidance, uh, was comparing myself from to good people and trying to emulate the good people. So in my life, how did I uh, do what I did? I emulated good people. And that's not the way most people do things. Most people covet things and use the negative envious um, the emotion, and they cut people down. So the next um, emotion is anger. And anger, if you become angry, angry makes you become focused. So if you don't lash out, let's say you're a ball player, a basketball player, and somebody drives around you, the good ball player would say, wow, that guy's fast, he's got good legs, so you're going to start doing drills to do your footwork and to try and improve yourself so that you can move in front of that player so that he can't drive around you. Whereas the anger person, the next thing he does is um, sticks his leg out and trips him or elbows him or does something negative. Uh, so all emotions have good, and as I mentioned, neighborhood pride. It, it, neighborhood pride is actually good as long as it doesn't get too excessive. If you're in a neighborhood of million-dollar homes, you don't want somebody coming in and building a $10 million home. That's a little bit over the top. But if somebody fixes their yard up or maybe goes green and takes all the grass out and does something for the environment, uh, that's that's good envy.
And that's what drives society. And that's why I think envy is so important because our envy is always on. I mean, you may have more of a rush with love, but love is not always on. Envy is always on. And that brings me to another slight bone of contention, which is good for you, you and your listeners. People use jealousy and envy interchangeably, and the two are completely different. Envy is frequently involved with jealousy, but envy is coveting something that someone else has. Either the person, their brains, uh, their looks, their physique, what they own. Whereas jealousy is you have something and you're losing it. So it's just opposite. You have the coveted thing. There's a third person involved. Jealousy involves three people, which is the easy way to remember it. Somebody is taking something that you have, which is completely opposite the envy, which is coveting something you don't have. So you may be envious of the person that's taking something, but maybe they're funnier than you than you are, so your wife is drawn to, for example. So they they still may have something that you have, but the the difference, and it's a huge difference, and most people don't recognize it. I was just reading on the plane going to Israel, a best-selling book by a very prominent author, and he used jealousy uh, almost inappropriately every time he used the term which should have been envy. So even the good, even even writers don't get it right all the time. So you're basically you're saying that envy is is wanting something you don't have, but jealousy is taking something you don't have. Jealousy is losing something you already have. So think of wife. If if somebody's taking your wife, you're jealous because she's attracted to somebody else. So you're losing something that you have, whereas envy's coveting something you don't have. So there's a huge difference, and one involves three people, and the other is just two people. So that that's the best way to remember it. Yeah, and it all it, comes down to, to that emotional intelligence that you mentioned a, a little right. bit ago. You need to be emotionally intelligent because as people, we can't always pick what feelings we're going to feel at that time. We have to control the feelings that, that, that we feel at, at that time. You can't just say, you know, I'm going I'm to be sad now. I'm going to be happy now. Things just, just, just come. But being emotionally intelligent is being able to, to control, control those, those emotions. Like you mentioned with, with, with anger. You could be angry and it's, it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to hit somebody be, because you feel angry. It's okay to, to be upset, but you have to be able to control that feeling because anger is just a normal part, part of life. Jealousy, you could say, is also a normal part of life, but you have to learn to control that jealousy because we're all going to feel those things. We all just can't always control those things. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's why it, I think the book is important because it, it reestablishes um, emotions in your life and understanding them. And in, in medicine, we say you can't diagnose it if you don't know it. So that's why it takes so long to become trained in medicine is because, in essence, you have to try and know everything. 
and that doesn't come overnight. So I'm giving you a shortcut on how to understand your your emotional makeup. And those emotions that I mentioned are the most common emotions I see in society daily. And who's at fault and who's right and who has, that's the whole pro- problem with our environmental, well, our environmental environmentalism that's going on now. I, I mean, is it really right to have EVs? Do they really save on the environment when you take batteries and everything that goes into the mining to to do it and everything? So, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think, might have been a, a good movement, but the conclusion of defunding the police was not a was not a good idea to my mind. So the whole idea with with this just to understand the the emotional makeup of the parties that you're looking at and the emotional makeup of yourself is the same. My wife knew exactly the emotional she knew me, so she knew how I was gonna behave and she kept me from acting out, which is which was what you want to do when you're anger angry. So it's identifying these basic emotions and understanding them, and then you understand your place in society and well as well and what role you're playing. I mean, these so-called Karens of the world, if you're familiar with them, are emotions and what they call righteous indignation, and they think they're right. It's kind of like us talking about the various religions and that uh, us the one religion thinking they're right and the other religion is wrong. And then through self-righteousness or justification, they feel that the other deserves to be cut down so that they can't make them change their mind and become to the correct side. So I'll just cut them down and then maybe they'll figure it out. But that's our, our problems. Our problem in society, one of the main problems is you know, when you talk about medicine, and you know, I spent my two years in the army, so I, I, I was 35 before I was done with all my training and obligations, and that's delayed gratification to think that you're going to give up 15 years of your life before you actually even start to do your thing. So that's why I would have, you know, especially I'm 79 now, so I'm an old guy, and I think very differently than I did back then, but, you know, my years are numbered now, and my good years are really numbered, so I want to live life to the fullest, but back then I could offer up a few years, but now I don't want to offer anything up, but unfortunately society doesn't want to offer anything up either. They want immediacy, and the internet gives them immediacy. As soon as you're pissed off about something, you can go to your echo chamber on the internet and find somebody that agrees with you and make you feel better. In the meantime, that's probably the wrong thing you should be doing. You should be having an open mind and going to the other box and, and seeing maybe they have a good idea like my wife did, taking time off and enjoying each other and living and enjoying the city that I had grown to hate a lot. Yeah, 100%. I really agree with that, with the whole echo chamber statement, because so as people are stuck doing the same thing over and over, over again. And the best solution or the best place they can look for a solution 
is somebody that doesn't offer them the solution that they, they want to hear. And it's, it's offering a solution that you didn't think about because like you said, the echo chamber, you go to speak to your, your friends or your peers or whatever, and they, you just bounce back the same ideas over and over and over again. And it's like, how are things going to, to change if you're just doing the same thing and repeating the same thing and you're hearing the same thing over and over again? How are you going to find like a solution if you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again? But people don't want to, they, they don't want that. They just want to almost in a sense, have somebody say, yeah, you're right. That person was in the wrong without them saying, hey, you know, maybe you're in the wrong. Maybe you should maybe change up your thing. It's always easier to point a finger at somebody else and tell them, hey, they're wrong, they're wrong, we're right, because look at all of us agreeing, and then you get stuck in this idea, this point of view, where then you think you're always right, because everyone that you speak to has the same same idea, same vision, and you're never, ever progressing, or you never think outside the box, because everyone's always like a yes man, in a sense. No, that's, that's the nail on the head, and the cable news, and this the streaming and the internet gives you that opportunity now. So the easiest thing always is to cut somebody down, not to improve yourself. So that's why we're in, I mean, this is just the signs of our time right now, that it's just too easy to do it. That's why I thought my book was so timely, was was because America really is cutting down each other more at a more rapid rate than, say, 50 years ago. And as I mentioned, it's mostly because of media and the Internet and the immediacy of everything. And everybody wants a result right away. They, If you don't agree with me, I'll just cut you down. So we're, we're stuck. And, and we need to take five. That's how you control anger, right? So I anger anger only anger is not as bad as everybody thinks. because of the news and everything, it looks worse, but anger only results in violence about ten percent of the time. It doesn't always follow through. And I always my favorite saying is um the next step is actually the third step is revenge, which is what I would have done if it hadn't been for my wife. And revenge, there's a saying, if, if you seek revenge, dig two graves. And that means one for the person you're trying to cut down and the other's for you because you're going to spend so much negative energy to win. And that person, if he's an idiot, you're going to have to be a bigger idiot than that idiot is in order to cut him down. So in the end, you're going to put so much negative energy into that person, which is kind of Will Smith. I mean, it cost him a lot to do something dumb. So you you need to, that's what anger management is about. This first thing, just step back and look at the situation. So all the emotions are like it. And if you understand the tall poppy syndrome, you'll be a better person. Okay. All right, Doug. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, one more thing before we end the show. Can you give us uh, a website or a way of people to maybe contact you or reach out to you if they have any questions or if they want to buy your book or just look into more of what you're doing? Yeah, I'll tell you one thing I learned from the book. I was going to, it became a self-help book subtly. So if you would read the book, you become a better person. Um what I learned, and I was going to 
write a section about, I had devoted a third of the time on how to be a tall poppy. That became really um, problematic because there's 10,000 tall poppy or 10,000 self-help books published annually. So the message there is if they're doing, if there's that many books uh, annually, they're, they, they may be inspirational, which a lot of them are, but they're not transforming. They're not transformational. They're not, nobody's changing or there wouldn't be a whole group, another 10,000 the next year. So I thought that wasn't my job. But what I did find was the easiest way to, to be a tall poppy is to serve people. So in my, I so once again subconsciously did all that in my life, but now I'm retired and I have uh, one, two, three, four, four neighbors that I take their garbage cans out and bring them back, for example, on garbage day because they're all going to work and stuff. And I'm sitting around doing nothing to do. So it's those little things in life that you do for people, which is what really counts. That's how, that's the easiest way to become a tall puppy. And for me, the website, the book website, which is, has a lot of things on it besides the book, is Doug Garland, D-O-U-G-G-A-R-L-A-N-D.com. And I have my own blog site, which I think is really good, um, which is tallpoppysyndrome.org. I only blog about seven to ten days because to do a good blog is hard work. And I, I'm retired. I don't like to work that hard. So I don't do that much of it, and, but the ones I do, I think, are very insightful. So tallpipysyndrome.org, give it a look. The last couple, that I just published a podcast that was recently published, but the two before that, I think, are very fascinating examples. One's the one from Russia I talked about, Prigozhin, which I like a lot, but they're pretty interesting, and you'll learn a lot about yourself if you get it. Okay, awesome. Thanks again, Doug. I really appreciate you taking this time to be on the show. Thank you so much. All right. Nice meeting you. Thanks.